Blog Talk Radio. Shadows are falling and I'm right out of breath. Keep me in your heart for a while. If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you any less. Keep me in your heart for a while. When you get up in the morning and you see that crazy sun, keep me in your heart for a while. There's a train leaving nightly called when all is said and done. Keep me in your heart for a while. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Progressive News Network. I'm your news director, Rick Spizak, and I have the tremendous honor to bring you one of America's leading progressive analysts, Democratic wisdom maker, Miss Brooke Hines. Brooke, welcome. Hi, and it's so good to be here again on Sunday. Uh before we get started with my stuff that I want to share, I, I want to let everyone know that we've got an amazing show. Uh, Janine Moloff is, uh, will be on at 8.30, and she's talking more about the abuse of power at the executive branch. We also have Amy Tidd, who will discuss the spread of uh, renewed visibility, shall we say, of uh, the KKK and white power in Central Florida. This has been an ongoing thing here. Um, uh, Floridians are fairly well uh, uh, familiar with this, um, but it's but it's still very shocking every time we hear more of it. Dennis Campbell will be with us, and also, let me know if I'm saying this right. Juana Guzman uh, discussing border issues. Okay, great and. And the name of the organization, and I always feel like I'm mispronouncing this, is uh, Racies, Texas? Yep. Okay. Wow. I'm doing good. Uh, pronunciation is really bad for those of us who get most of our information in printed form because you never hear it being said. So uh, that's just a, a constant thing for me. But now, what a week. Holy Christ. Uh, we had a big debate this week, and I did a PNN extra uh, midweek. Go and look for that if you're interested. And, you know, the big takeaway from the debate was uh, Chuck Todd at the very end uh, had asked the same question of each of the people, each of the candidates on the stage. And he asked, uh, essentially, would you be for a contested convention or um, would you rather that 
the uh, person who wins the popular votes wins. And it was a it was a very interesting moment because Bernie Sanders was the only person on the stage who said, "Yeah, whoever." whoever gets the popular vote should should win, even if they don't make the 50% plus one uh, formula. Um, everybody else said, uh, let's, let's play by the rules. That's the way that they were framing it, um, regardless of the popular vote. Now, this is down the road a ways, and we talked about this earlier this week. It's down the road a ways, and a contested convention is a very complicated uh, kind of arcane thing that can happen. The last time we had a contested convention, I think was in the 1950s, and I talked about that on Wednesday's show. But uh, let's say, here's the, here's the scenario that everyone's putting down. Let's say that Bernie Sanders gets, uh, is like 10 delegates short to win the nomination outright. So you need 1,990 delegates to win this nomination. Let's say he gets 1,980 delegates. So he's 10 delegates short. Um, What do you do then? There is a lot of speculation and and a lot of good journalism that's been, been done on how Bloomberg is in the race right now in order to get power over the convention. Like, this is the scenario. He doesn't think that he can win outright, but he does think that he can win enough delegates to have some sway should there be a contested convention. Then what happens in a contested convention is you put together two or more of the of the uh, uh, other candidates, and you see if their delegates will add up to 1,990. This is easy for me to remember because it's 1990, essentially, which was a great year for music. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> it was. You know, um, so that's a, that's a ways down the road. But, but the thing I think that we need to think about is what that would do to the party. Now, parties already uh, kind of limping along, trying to find its way, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as, as uh, here in a second. But if they were to do something at the very end of this long campaign season and try to do some funny business, as much as as much as the party is a a big old pain in the butt to a lot of people on the left, it isn't in anyone's interest for the party to go down doing something like that. So I think it would be a terrible scenario, not just because of uh, the prospect of taking an election away from somebody who is on the way to winning it, but I think it would be a terrible thing to happen to the Democratic Party in toto, just all the way around. But let's set that aside for a second, uh, because uh, after all of that happened, we went into the Nevada caucuses. And if you watched any television yesterday, if you caught any of the uh, coverage on this, the, the Nevada caucuses were... It was a blowout for Bernie. He, 
the media was able to call it for Bernie uh, with just 1% reporting. So there was an enormous groundswell. Now, as of right now, we've only got 60% of the precincts reporting. And it looks like Pete Buttigieg is trying to, he's lodging some complaints and trying to slow down the process and uh, re-examine some of the caucuses without necessarily doing a recount. So he's not calling for a recount yet, but he's, he's coming darn close to calling for a, a recount. And who knows, he might actually, that, that's what the campaign might actually land on. Now, the reason for this is, and I need to find my numbers here, it, Pete Buttigieg is right on the cusp with 60% being counted. He is right on the cusp at 15.3% at, at of the uh, delegates or of the votes or however they count it in, in Nevada. Um, if he loses that three-tenths of 1%, if he loses that 0.3 and goes down to like 14.8 or 14.9, he will no longer be viable and he won't get any delegates. Now, the last delegate count that I saw is that Bernie has 10 delegates and he's the only one who has taken on any delegates at this point. So they haven't awarded any as of just a little while ago to anybody else but, but Bernie. So what we saw yesterday as this was all kind of shaking out, was just bizarre. Now, we've talked about this on the show quite a bit. I don't watch a lot of, of MSNBC or CNN because I don't feel like it's the best place to get to be well-informed about the news. I, I like to follow reporters and follow the narratives that, that they're working on and compare those narratives. You know, I, I like to go deeper. So it's always shocking when I do turn on the news and I actually get a whiff of what is happening on the news. Yesterday was a huge freak out by the corporate media. And you might have heard of, about some of this. Chris Matthews said some very bizarre stuff. But uh, I want to walk you through what it was like yesterday waiting for these returns. Now, this first one, I'm going to play a clip. And this first clip is uh, waiting for results in a caucus. This is MSNBC reporting. Largely people of color of those, the majority, are Latino. And they are clearly, at least from eyeballing it, Strongly in favor of Bernie Sanders with Joe Biden coming in. So, let me play that one more time. Brian? I'm going to back those up. Here we go. See if you can hear the sigh. Strongly in favor of at least from eyeballing it. Strongly in favor of Bernie Sanders with Joe Biden coming in second. Brian? This, this was a reporter on the ground in Nevada who uh, was <laughs> clearly unhappy with what she was seeing. Oh, my God, Bernie people. And when she panned around the room, you could see that there were like 100 people on the Bernie side of the caucus and the other candidates couldn't make viability. 
And uh, so, you know, perhaps that's why you heard the sigh. Then moments later, there was this from Brian Williams. Steve Kornacki, nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Are there any more numbers? Let me play that one more time. And I'm going to turn up the volume really quickly so that you can hear it. Louisiana. Steve Kornacki, nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Are there any more numbers out of the- <laughs> A nation turns its lonely eyes to you, Steve Kornacki. Please give us some numbers that tell us Bernie Sanders is not winning. Oh my God. So <laughs> this is this is right. They're, they're starting to get ramped up. They're starting to get a little weird. And then Brian Williams passes it over to Chris Matthews. Now, this is where it starts to get real interesting. And, again, I'm going to pump up the volume. Hold on. There we go. Just, I was reading last night, Brian. I know you're a history guy, too. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940. And the general, Rendell, calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill says, how can it be? you got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. Okay. If you can. Chris Matthews was comparing Bernie Sanders winning the Nevada caucus to the German Nazis taking over France in 1940. And so you might see this. It's trending on Twitter. It's been trending all day. There's a lot of people who are calling on Chris on MSNBC to somehow, you know, get an apology or an acknowledgement from Chris Matthews that that's a little out of line. Now, Chris Matthews has been, uh, he's been on this, this uh, uh, thing lately where he, he, he went on another riff not too long ago about if, <laughs> If Cuba had somehow won the Cold War, he said that he would probably have been hung in Central Park. Words to that effect. Like if Cuba had won and the Red Scare turned into a Red Terror or whatever, he would have been hung in Central Park. And now he's, th- now he's you know, positing that Bernie Sanders' movement is akin to the Nazis taking over France. I'm starting to wonder what are Chris Matthews' crimes? What has he done? Why is he feeling so guilty here? Because, you know, what we're talking about, what Bernie Sanders is talking about is people paying their fair share of taxes and there being uh, some form of medical assistance for everybody. The the, uh, shots, at any rate, just very, very bizarre. Now, the other thing that was bizarre, and I was not expecting this, is Joanne Reed was the first person at MSNBC yesterday to grok what was going on and to be able to talk about it in a rational way to the viewers. And she did a really good job. So check this out. This is Joanne Reed. Right now, it is the people. And I think that the rest of us that sort of look at politics have underestimated the sheer, unadulterated rage the anger of working class people, especially young people who are living in, with three uh, roommates and have a lit job and an Uber job and they can't make it and they're looking at my generation, Gen X, who we could have it all in the Clinton years and we were living well and our parents and grandparents and they're like, throw the tables over. They're turning the tables over and they don't care what the potential results are. 
Trying to step before I speak again. Okay, so what she's talking about there is she she's alluding to the uh, she's she's alluding to the story of Jesus turning over the the tables in the temple, um, and she's kind of grasping for that and not quite finding it, and so it's a nod to some sort of idea of social or economic justice. So I give her a lot of credit here for recognizing what's going on and distancing herself from the pack, which is for the last while just lost their minds over what is going on in Nevada. Um, So that was, oh, and then there's this, and then there's this. New York Times reporter Lisa Lair on, I believe this is on CNN. Uh, you know, we've been having these discussions about civility and discourse. And I caught this little clip from, from CNN. So have a, have a listen to this. Picturing Michael Bloomberg with kind of a club with spikes going medieval on Bernie Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so she's trying to make she's trying I don't know she's she's trying to uh, create an analogy or or draw an illustration of Michael Bloomberg um, being victorious I suppose over Bernie Sanders let's hear this one more time I'm I'm picturing Michael Bloomberg with kind of a club with spikes going medieval on Bernie Sanders yeah <laughs> And for those of us who uh, at one point watched The Walking Dead, I've long since stopped watching it. That is that is a, a scenario that was a much touted cliffhanger that, you know, who's going to get killed with the club with the spikes on it in next season. That was when I decided to stop watching that show. And it was also when I decided to stop watching CNN yesterday. Um, uh Discourse, discourse is is uh, becomes coarse on all sides during a political um, campaign. During all political campaigns, it's bound to happen. But I think we have to draw the line, and and we have to have a serious discussion about when people on corporate media, when the people who have the biggest microphones, are talking about uh, you know being taken out and shot. I was corrected by a listener um, via text a little while ago. Chris Matthews feared that he would be shot in Central Park, not not hung. Um, he also, and then the likening to the German Nazis invading France and so on and so forth. All of this hyperbolic uh, discourse is bound to take root in culture at some point and per- perhaps Amy Tidd will will have something to add to that as we go forward uh, because you know it's it, it, oftentimes it is people who are the most alienated that are you know, take part in those white power groups in those white nationalist groups and they're also the ones who are the most uh, unstable you know so when people start talking like this on, on corporate media uh, I start to get a little anxious and, and wondering when that's going to manifest in society because eventually these things do manifest and we've seen it happen over and over again in history. Now, I 
do not want that to happen because I think we are on the precipice of something very important right now. Uh, there's breaking news right before we came on tonight. Uh, Marianne Williamson has endorsed uh, um, Bernie Sanders, and she gave a an amazing speech <clears throat> in Austin, Texas, uh, to uh, to uh, uh, underscore her support. And here's just a little piece of it. This is this is really good stuff. And let us know that we did what those before us have done. And we said in our time to the forces who would say it can't be done. This liberty and justice stuff is a dream. It's just something you talk about. But when it gets in the way of the financial interests of a few, you can't have that. And we have been trained in America over the last two decades to expect too little. To say pretty please about things that should be the right of every American. Today, today. We're tired of saying pretty please. We're going to stand up. We're going to show up because we woke up. And we're going to say with grace. We're going to say with style. We're going to say to all those who say liberty and justice cannot be done. Sure, hell can be because we're here and we're with Bernie. Thank you. Marianne Williamson is from Texas. She's, uh, it makes a lot of sense to see her in this context. And it's wonderful to see that she has endorsed Bernie Sanders. I think that this is a very important endorsement. Um, it's an important endorsement for me because I, I really like Marianne Williamson. And I think that she represents what she talks about uh, in terms of values and morality and, you know, this other side of, you know, she, she uses kind of a, a new age framing for, for her, kind of philosophy but it works and it's it, it, and I think it's valid and these are the ideas that we are bringing to the table is that this is a moral fight that this is a this is we're we're trying to do the right thing for masses of people who are uh, on the verge of not being able to take care of yourselves like if you can't go to a doctor uh, and, and you can't get an education and you can't start a family because you're in debt for an education or whatever it is, then society is starting to break down. And again, you know, that's when, when society starts to break down, it starts to not work for those at the margins. And then the margins kind of creep in a little bit more to the center. And then it's not working for more and more and more people Then that's when we've got a problem. And, and that's where we're at right now. Um, Anand Gerhandis does a really good job of talking about plutocracy and about the problem that the establishment has with understanding uh, what's going on in the Sanders campaign. And he was on Joy Ann Reed's show this morning, dropping some knowledge. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna play just a clip or two of this. Many in this establishment are behaving, in my view, as, as they face the prospect of a Bernie Sanders nomination, like out-of-touch aristocrats in a dying aristocracy, just sort of, how do we stop this? How do we block this? And there is no curiosity. Why is this happening? What is going on in the lives of my fellow citizens in this country? They may be voting for something that I find it so hard to understand. What is happening? 
Now, that's really important, and this is a discussion that I think we're going to be having for a while, because what is completely obvious to me and to most of the people that I know who are in my cohort, what's completely obvious to us is not seen, absolutely not understood, not comprehended, not perceived by other people that I know who are on who are in another tax bracket, shall we say, you know, uh, and, and so they're absolutely befuddled. They have no idea how, how to deal with this. Um, Anon goes on. Let's uh, listen to this piece right here. Oops. No, let's do this one. Something by his Chris Matthews on this air talking about the victory of Bernie Sanders who had killed, murdered in the Holocaust and analogizing it to the Nazi conquest of France. The people who are stuck in an old way of thinking in 20th century frameworks in gulag thinking are missing what is going on. And it's time for all of us to step up, rethink, and understand the dawn of what may be, frankly, a new era in American life. The dawn of a new era in American life. Now, you know, I had, I had not failed to mention that Bernie Sanders had family that had uh, perished uh, at the hands of the Nazis uh, during World War II. That's what makes what Chris Matthews said on air yesterday all the more horrific. Uh, and I really hope that that gets uh, dealt with. Uh, and that there's an apology or an understanding or, you know, I, th I think that more than anything, there needs to be a discussion. There needs to be a, 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 a coming together. The last thing I'm going to, I, I want to leave you with this last piece. Um, Mary Williamson. This is Kendrick Sampson, who is in HBO's show Insecure. He's a Black Lives Matter activist. And he has been appearing with Bernie Sanders at a few of his rallies in Texas. And this is how Kendrick Sampson closes out his uh, uh, words when he's at, at one of these rallies. Me, all right, y'all ready? Y'all ready? This is how we close out our Black Lives Matter meeting, with the words of Asada Shakur. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and support one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Now hold each other's hands high. He has everyone hold each other's hands. This is where this is where things start to get real. Now listen to how the room changes. Hold them high. for me to watch that without getting a little choked up. 
and to, to, to hear the what's going on in the room. I know that that's hard to um, translate over into just completely audio, but these are the things that we have to start doing. We have to start linking hands and we have to start, you know, creating a body that is beyond the abstract thought of the movement. And that's when things start to get really real. Bringing Marianne Williamson in, uh, this uh, this uh, vibe that, that Kendrick Sampson is bringing, and the way that this movement is coming together. This is not this is not a presidential campaign like we've seen before. This is something entirely different. So, Rick. Yes, my dear. Thank you so very much. You always bring us very moving material. That was really special. Thanks so much, Brooke, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Go in peace, my sister. All right. Bye. Next up, my friends, I'm going to be talking with Amy Tidd, a longtime progressive activist and uh, an amazing woman with so many talents, so many skills, and such a marvelous history. Amy, welcome. Well, good evening, Rick. Please How are be you, with my you. dear? Well, with you, just, my sister. just wonderful, just fighting for democracy and having the, letting the people have a have a voice. Here, I, I'm here in Brevard County, Florida, and I have been um, involved here since the 90s, so I've seen a lot of different actions here in Florida. And, um, you know, what I talked to you about last week is there's a change in how um, when people show up to have a protest or a rally or a march, um, there's a a big change in opposition to these peaceful actions here in Brevard. Talk to so us about I it. Just, I, I have yeah, known you um, for, for over a decade as a person committed to democratic progressive values. I've seen you. I know your career history is you have been in service to this country for a very long time. And Brevard has a wonderful progressive uh, groups and also has, uh, should we say, the recidivists. Uh, and, and I wouldn't even call them conservative. I would call them dead-enders and, and you know, out-and-out racist. Tell us what you've been seeing. Well, I probably the first march I did here in Brevard was with the Space Coast Progressive, long time ago when we were the first they were marching against the Iraq war and right before they went to the to war and there was probably a thousand people and very peaceful people just marched with signs and over the past probably 20 years you know if there was an issue people would we would go out and march and have signs and rallies and speak and um our voices were able to be heard so last year, though, something changed. When we would have a rally before, if there was opposition, which is great, it's always good to have different viewpoints, they would stand on the other side of the street and they would have their signs, and it would still be a very peaceful, democratic kind of event. But this year, it has changed, and 
what's going on is, I don't know whether I should call it authoritarianism or fascism, but there is a effort any time that there is a progressive rally to actually shut down people's voices. And it's a total different thing that I've seen before. So I just am really, really concerned. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. I went down to Miami Beach. and Have you heard of the Proud Boys? Yeah. Probably have. Yeah, sure have. Well, we were down there for one of the first debates, and I was standing with a bunch of people waiting to get in. With Everybody had a sign for a presidential candidate. And about four of these guys showed up, these Proud Boys, and in, usually when progressives have a rally, they, ha, they, they make you get a, like a mile away from like the presidential candidate or whatever. But these right. guys were, came right up, you know, two inches away from these peaceful, nice people standing there with like Elizabeth Warren signs with a megaphone. And they were screaming in the people's faces, trying to provoke trying to shut down, <laughs> trying, just, and the problem is that the progressives are not, you know, they're not warlike, they don't show up with guns, they don't, you know, they're just there to express their viewpoints. So I first saw it there, and then here in Bavard, this past year, every time there is a rally, um, the other side shows up, and instead of having their own rally, these guys get into the peaceful rally with megaphones and flags, and they they try to shut it down. It's a whole different thing. It's it's very pro. Um, just you know, like I said, I mean, to me, they may be wearing red hats, but it was what the brown shirts did in Germany. Sure. To actually. Um, shut down peaceful marches and things. So I just wanted to, you know, call and talk about that a little bit. You know, we have a president, I was going to say, we have a president right now who has said things at his rallies where he's not only encouraged people to, to rough up protesters, but he's actually from time to time offered to pay their bills. It, it is quite clear who it is that's enabling these people. And we see this kind of failure to understand the First Amendment, failure mm-hmm. to understand the importance of dissent. If right. these people had any comprehension of the Founding Fathers and their mission and the the reason that free speech is the First Amendment is not just to throw shade on the second, but instead reflects the fact that without the voice of the people, without the voice of dissent, calling for redress of grievances, we cannot have the democracy we seek. Very true, and very well put, Rick. Thank Um, you. This is what holds America together is our ability to disagree without being disagreeable, to have different points of view. And what I'm concerned of here in Brevard is that, okay, like I've been to rallies. I'm, I'm, they're not going to shut me down. But like last weekend, 
the some young people from our high school had a March for Our Life rally to recognize the two years after the shooting at Park. Sure, sure. And so they they planned this rally, and they were told they shouldn't and that they would be, you know, at risk or whatever, but they were brave enough to go ahead and do that. Well, these guys showed up, um, and they came in with megaphones, and they followed the group, the students, blaring sirens. They were shouting Trump 2020 chants at a megaphone um, over the top of those who'd come to memorialize dead children. These were young people they were going after. Yeah. And it's some of them were supposedly sent by one of our county commissioners. We have a county commissioner now that tries to pretend like he's like Trump. So what they're trying to do, I believe, is to get people who've never come to a rally before to then never go again. (laughs) You know, because they like it's scary. They're very scary. They're you know, you know, they're dressed in military gear, they got flags, they, you know. So I'm just speaking out because I think people should know that this is not normal. This is different. This is, you know, this is not saying I'm voting for Trump. This is saying you have no right to speak out and we're going to shut you down. So. Well, you know, we have a president who is saying things like, whistleblowers should not be tolerated, that dissent should not be tolerated, that dissent is an embarrassment to our country, when in fact the exact opposite is true. And while you can chalk a certain amount up to plain just garden variety ignorance, there is in fact a viciousness to this. There is in fact a lawlessness to this. And those of us who have real respect for the Constitution, must continue to support free speech because clearly, unfortunately, those values are not in place in this administration. Right. Right. So I just I wanted to, to speak up because I just think that it's a new thing that people don't really know how to deal with, you know, and it's, it's bullies who are yeah. glorifying it. And I just, I'm very concerned for America because if you cannot get out and speak, you know, your point of view without being almost physically attacked. I mean, so far there's only been total harassment, but there's never, you know, they haven't thrown a punch. They haven't, you know done anything mm-hmm. physical, but there is that implied threat where they're getting two sure. inches away with, with a megaphone Sure. and One trying our, to um, start something, basically. One of our regular contributors is a philosophy professor uh, up in central northern Pennsylvania, and uh, she's been harassed uh, both online and in her person, and uh, she... <clears throat> had hoped that her university would support her. (laughs) Their support has been, let's say, tepid at best and prepared completely, uh, basically urging her to sit down and not rock the boat. And uh, the latest uh, thrust of the rights attack on her is uh, 
one of the right wingers has said, well, her her signs of uh, distress, uh, she ha- hangs a flag in her her classroom upside down, which is a universal sign of distress. Her right. her sign of distress. Uh, this gentleman said, well, as a veteran, it brings on his PSD, PTSD. Yeah. So he's trying to play the veterans card, and right. and uh, you know pl- uh, apply. You know, should we say patriot shaming uh, when, of course, anyone who has any passing understanding of the Constitution knows how important dissent and the unique voice of freedom of speech, how important that is to our Constitution. Right, definitely. Um, Another point that I wanted to make, and it it ties into that, where her university is not backing her up. The authorities are going on the side of these bullies. When I was down at the debate and these people were just totally being harassed, there was police right across the street watching and laughing. Yeah. And, you know, finally they sent some little woman over to do something, but they don't, they think it's, they're on the side of the oppressors, I hate to say, but right. I just, you know, we have seen that again and again. And if if our side wants to be protected, we actually have to pay to have somebody there at a rally, which... Yeah. So I, I don't know, I just think the other, they're crossing the line and they they don't want America, they don't want voting and they don't want democracy and free speech. They want authoritarianism they want everybody to be quiet and to wave their flags and shut up and we've seen that yeah. before yeah. it didn't work out very good for germany no, um, and i just think we all have to speak up against it there's an old german saying that it's if a nazi sits down at a table of 10 people and they start speaking about nazism and nobody speaks up against them then there's not one Nazi, there's ten. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the hard part, is that people, good people, need to speak up against this bullying, against this harassment. Yeah. And that includes police officers and veterans and people in authority. You know, when, when we see overseas uh, policemen and firemen in France and in the Far East, standing united with the protesters. And, yeah. and we hear over here people saying, well, you know, the police are too often part of the problem and that they make common cause with these kind of right-wing fascist bullies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the question becomes, well, either you show us that you stand for the Constitution and not for authoritarianism, or be prepared to be painted with that same brush, because clearly right. too often they seem to have no objection to, uh, well, for example, you know, look at what just happened in the Virginia State House. Armed men paraded around en masse, en masse un, unapproached by the police. Right. They were and that, that's unmolested. What, that's what worries me, is they're, they're allowed to do things 
that if the progressive side did did one small thing, would be completely we'd be we'd be locked up. Um, they were up in Washington D.C. There was this white supremacist march, all masked, and they were escorted by the police. Yeah, I mean escorted, and you know breaking the law of you know being masked. Right. So I think we have to be very concerned that um, our authorities need to understand who's a who's paying for them. I mean, you know, they're being paid by the tax tax dollars. So. Well, thank sure. you so much, I, Amy. I just you, think we all raise... have to be careful. You're absolutely right, and we are called upon to be the patriots we know we need to be. Thank you so very much for okay. bringing this very well, important thank issue. thank you for having let me come on and speak about this, and you have a good night. Thank you. Please call back again, and uh, I do want to continue this conversation. It's an important conversation. Thank you, Amy. Good night. Okay. Okay, friends, next up. I've got uh, Mr. Dennis Campbell from Wales, uh, an American expatriate who shares his uh, insights on both uh, European and and, uh, British politics as well as things here in the States. Uh, Mr. Dennis Campbell. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Mr. Dennis Campbell, uh, international journalist and commentator. Uh, publisher of many things, uh, author of Extreme Note of International Matters, uh, Mr. Mr. Campbell, welcome, sir. Good to be here. How are you doing today? Very good, very good. There's so many topics I'd like to sprinkle you with and get your take on it. Uh, first of all, uh, boy, you've got as interesting a government as we do, and I don't say that in a good way. Uh, <laughs> First, let's, you let's, get a cabinet position. You get a cabinet position. You get a pardon cabinet. you, and pardon you, and pardon you, and pardon you. Okay, first things, uh, what's up with Brexit these days? You know, it has disappeared from the radar screen with a couple of major exceptions. I mean, you know, no, nobody talks about it anymore. And, uh, you know, we're starting to see already some of the side effects and what life is going to be like after Brexit, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the EU is quick to point out that, uh, no, you're not going to get a Canada-like deal now, whatever the hell that means. Um, and the uh, Home Secretary here has decided, just like uh, your customs and immigration have, that uh, unskilled laborers who pick all of our fruit and veg need not apply. Uh, so, uh, you know, as, as you had Mulvaney come out and say this is a really bad idea uh, you know, 100% of financial advisors around the globe are saying you know this is a really bad idea uh, <laughs> so uh, you know we're all facing that uh, immigration situation um, you know the other interesting item that popped up this past week was I began to see tweets of people who were traveling you know, from the U.K. to, say, Amsterdam or Paris or the normal things, and now they're no longer able to go through the expedited fast pass line that happens for EU residents and uh, people who have, 
you know, French or Dutch passports. All of a sudden, we're thrown into the teeming masses with everyone else. So this hashtag, not the Brexit I signed up for, this is the actual Brexit you signed up for. So get used to it. You're no longer part of the European Union, so you can't use the speedy line, you idiots. Incredible. We'll talk about American peccadillos in a minute. But uh, let me let me pepper you with a couple other questions. Another uh, another issue I want to talk to you about is, um, you know, Mr. Mr. Johnson has has uh, drained your swamp too, and and only brought in the best people. Yeah, well, that was to be expected. I mean, this is a Tory government, and he has he has a bigger majority than Margaret Thatcher had at eighty two seats, and. You know, Jeremy Corbyn is going through a leadership election, and, uh, you know, yesterday he said, well, I'll keep the door open to a shadow cabinet role when, you know, you don't hear anything about Theresa May as a backbencher. I mean, she's just disappeared from sight. Uh, And the same thing is going to happen to him as a former party leader. It's just it just doesn't work out that way or does it work out that well for them once they're gone? Oh, and Tony Blair has come out also and said that Labour has to avoid the cul-de-sac of identity politics. <laughs> hell, that. so yeah. that we're, we're going to try to again uh, reduce the impact of any of those browner black people quickly, yep. as, as quickly as possible. Okay, uh, well, and on that uh, sour note, let me let me ask you to return for a moment. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've at least seen some of the synopses of the recent debate. Uh, what was your uh, what was your take on it, sir? Well, I, you know, first of all, <clears throat> pardon me. I really objected to people calling it a food fight or a brawl. Right. right. To me, it was a good debate. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. As a as a lifelong member of the Democratic Party, I felt very proud. And I would have any one of those six people represent me as the party standard bearer because they fought like hell. Uh, I really liked what Elizabeth Warren did coming back up from the ashes <laughs> like a phoenix. Um, you know, I thought Joe, who's been a statesman throughout the whole thing, came out swinging, which was good to see. Uh, you know, Bernie got more shrill and louder, but, you know, even he is still much more palatable than Donald Trump in my book. Um, sure. And for, for, you know, I think, I think Buttigieg is, is, is very smart, um, but nobody likes the smartest kid in the room. And I think he's got a lot of issues that can be solved in time by running for and winning a statewide office, serving as a governor, serving as a senator, in a way that he can actually make policy rather than you know, have the only thing on his resume being a stint with McKinsey and a stint as the mayor of an 8,000-person city or something. I mean, I think he won. He, he won with a vote total of 8,000. And, you know, I just... I, what I object to more than anything else beyond the debate, Rick, yeah. is the fact that the horse race mentality of the American mainstream media has been so over-the-top ridiculous when we've only decided on 2% of the delegates needed to win the nomination. And to say that Biden is done or Bernie's got it in the bag or this or that, I mean, 
I'm tired of the horse race memes and the throw everything up in the air after every one of these. Talk to me after Super Tuesday. By well, Super see, Tuesday, we'll have a better idea of where things stand, and I think it's going to be a hell of a lot closer than people want it to be, and it's going to become a horse race right to the convention, and a brokered convention could actually be quite good for the Democrats because gives them the chance to really come together. You know, I, I think that the, the, the problem with your analysis, sir, is you're thoughtful. <laughs> and have I'm some sorry, political acumen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no wonder you're not working in mainstream press there you these go. days. There you go. <laughs> yeah, the the breathless quality, the you know the almost completely tabloid sort of uh, sort of mentality is is really off putting to a lot of people and. You know, you can understand why, in, in a lot of ways, mainstream commercial press is their own worst enemy, because they they've really just run the the gossip riff into the ground. And uh, you know, how many times can you declare a candidate dead after the what second <laughs> second search? It's just it's it's appalling. Yeah. And uh, you know, they there's clearly certain uh, certain. Uh, People have been selected as the favorites and all, and uh, a lot of the party regulars uh, who who didn't mind uh, bringing Senator Sanders around for a, a non-victory lap after uh, uh, Senator and Secretary of State Clinton's debacle uh, when she ran against a third-rate reality TV star. They took him around all over the United States and did rallies and stuff, and he was fine and welcome. Um, but now he's a pariah, and now they don't like him, and now they're scared. The poor dears. Uh, enough of that. Let me go on to another topic that I think is absolutely shocking. Um, it seems that Mr. Trump has a different kind of sense of justice than, than most people. Um, if you're a friend of Don, as they say, uh, you, you can do no wrong. That's exactly right. I mean, <clears throat> I thought... Judge Amy Berman Jackson yesterday, or day before, with her opinion, and if you've had a chance to read it, it, it's um, unbelievable, the transcript of it, how damning it is for Trump, how damning it is for his people, how damning it is for Roger Stone um, to see all of the ways, but the problem is nobody in the United States reads, so they're not going to sit and do what I did, which is to read the transcript. Did you say say read, sir? I'm I'm familiar with the concept. I know. Sorry. It's just... (laughs) It drives me crazy that, I mean, <clears throat> what she wrote was a textbook precy on why the United States is having the judicial and constitutional crisis that it is currently having. And as a federal judge, her opinion just was straight down the middle, absolutely brilliant word for word. And the way she cross-examined the lead prosecutor who was basically now standing in for the four who walked away and quit after this ridiculous quitters, bunch of quitters. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Traitors. Yeah. I mean, they were unbelievable in the way in which you know, they fact they, they stood up and the fact that none of that gets any of the press that it deserves is absolutely appalling. I don't give a crap who won the debate by, you know, whatever number percent I care about who wins in the caucus tomorrow, this being Saturday. I know we're doing this on Sunday. I know your show airs on Sunday, but we're recording on Friday. 
Right. Boy, did that did that sound confusing? Sorry you about worked that. that out, man. You must. Oh, that's right. You read. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, it was just like I, I sit there and I look at the things. Like, for example, this Julian Assange case with Dana Rohrbacker. Wow. That thing wow. is so incredibly freaking explosive, and. When I saw it break on The Guardian over here, I put a tweet out immediately. I said, whoa, this is going to be huge. But no, it didn't fit into the horse race mentality of the Democratic primary. And so it got zero coverage when, to me, it's one of the more corrupt things I've seen done. I mean, Rohrbacher is a crook. He has been forever. I ran five years ago in uh, (laughs) Paris at the Iran support group that, you know, so many members, including Rudy Giuliani and John Bolton and others, were there for Boku bucks. They were making a ton of money to stand on the stage and then go before the world media and say that, you know, the Iranian um, clerical government should be overthrown and this group should be put in its place. And, and it was ridiculous to see this group out there. And, you know, I remember when I think it was the um, Speaker of the House said, you know, there's only two pe-. No, it wasn't the Speaker, it was McCarthy who said, you know, well, there's only two people in the United States that we know for certain are on Putin's payroll. Donald Trump <laughs> and Representative Dana Rohrbacker. This guy is so freaking dirty. I mean, he lost his seat, thank God, finally, to a Democrat who's doing a superb job in that district. But the guy is just the sleaziest person you ever want to come across. And he offered a pardon, a presidential pardon, to Julian Assange if he would come forward and do these other things. I mean, it's just insane. Well... Well, I think we can we can be assured that uh, uh, there's nothing but justice coming out of uh, uh, the bar office and and uh, and the White House. I mean, clearly, uh, uh, all is forgiven, uh, Mr. Assange, if you only lie for us. Gosh, where have I heard that song before? Well, and then you've got this other dueling controversy over the uh, new head of the DNI, this guy Grinnell, who is in a, a disaster as the United States ambassador to Germany and just a partisan hack. And now he's going to be in the senior intelligence role, basically coordinating everything that comes out of the Pentagon, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the, um, the, 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 the group up in, uh, in, in Maryland, the NSA. All right. He's going to be the one that takes all the data and then synthesizes it for the president. He's going to be Clapper. He's going to be... You know, all these guys that have have (laughs) served with distinction and have years in the diplomatic and intelligence services. And this hack is going to come in and do that job. Well, and uh, we're going to leave Mr. Campbell for now. And uh, we'll be joining uh, our next guest in just a minute, uh, Ms. Juana Guzman of RISIS. Hold on one moment. We're going to hear from our friends from the Daughters of Isis. Daughters of Isis is the ancestor of aromacology, indigenous scents representing the fragrant memories of our ancestors to provide us the tools of the inner quest 
the authentic moment, and to heal the Earth Mother. Daughtersofisis.com Wholesale available also. Mention PNN and enjoy a free sample from our apothecary. For your aromatherapy needs, that's daughtersofisis.com And now I'd like to bring you Miss Juana Guzman. Juana, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our great pleasure. Um, we we have been very concerned uh, for a long time with the terrible goings-on at the southwest border, and we've had a couple different reports in the past. Uh, you bring a unique uh, vision of those issues. Please give us some idea of the work of ISIS and your work and what we need to know about what's going on now. Yes, of course. Um, I really appreciate you, um, you know, just looking for for more information on this. It's definitely something that um, we're not always welcome to share with with people, <laughs> in, you know, in such yes. in such a way. But uh, but I, I do appreciate um, the opportunity. I so I'll start a little bit about with a little bit about how I started. I think it's relevant only in that. I've definitely gone and or I've seen the changes in the last few years through the work that I've been doing and also um, in the way that we respond as an immigrant rights movement. Um, but I, so I started organizing in 2011 as a student at the University of Texas in Austin. I was introduced or I was invited to a, a student meeting of young activist and I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into um, <laughs> but I you know as is, as is the case I feel with a lot of us in the in the movement but I knew that I wanted right. to see you know change in a way that I wasn't I wasn't feeling very um, safe in this country one would say I was uh, a young undocumented student and I this was before um, the Deferred Action Program implemented or, you know, put out by Obama. So I, I wasn't feeling very safe. I, I didn't know what my future would hold. So I, I joined this meeting in the hopes of, you know, having some clarity around what could be done, really hoping that um, there'd be an answer to some of my concerns. But as I found, um, there were a lot of other kids in my situation who were in the same sort of boat. They just didn't know uh, what was going to happen, but um, when we came together, there was a huge sense of, well, first community. We were building community, and then um, uh, our priority back then was pushing for the DREAM Act, um, so we were trying to get permanent residency for undocumented youth. Um, we are trying to stop deportations of undocumented youth. All of that um, was kind of like the first thing I was introduced to when I was um, starting my my work and and, it, and I always say it was out of survival. It was really just because I didn't know what was going to happen in my own life, um, and that's really what prompted me to seek, um, you know, to take action in some way. But um, yeah, so I I don't know that I don't know exactly how um, how. At the beginning, things were a little bit blurry to me. I wasn't sure. I was just kind of going with the, with the flow. But I realized that uh, we were not the only ones fighting in, in, in you know, against 
these deportations, we started joining national um, groups of people, of youth all over the country, and eventually pushed for what is now um, DACA. It's being taken out. It's you know being taken away, and it's and there's a Supreme Court and everything. But uh, I was part of the uh, of a lot of you know this youth that were pushing for for DACA in the first place. Um, and in in 2012, when it happened, I knew that you know I was protected, I was fine, but I still didn't feel right that there were a lot of people left out, and it also felt very uncertain because we knew it was a temporary status. It wasn't like it was going to keep me here forever or or help me find a way towards citizenship. So it was definitely still an unstable situation that kept me um, kind of motivated to keep going. And just after being in the movement, I, I started meeting a lot of not just youth, but older adults who were here and they were fine with their kids getting help, but they they weren't getting anything. And so that really disturbed me and I didn't want to be part of just this one change. I wanted to keep pushing for something for a broader um you know, expansion of protection for more people. And so um, that's what really has kept me going. Um, in 2016, I joined RAICES, and I um, I realized that, you know, what a, what a time to do that, because that's exactly, uh, you know, around the time of elections is when I when I joined the organization and, and realized that we were going to have to push in different ways. Um, not because what was happening was, much different it's just it's gone progressively worse over the years and that those are the changes I, I guess I was talking about earlier um, the I, I've always seen how bad it, 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 it has been but during Trump it, it's been more blatantly out there so we've definitely seen a shift of you know even less protection even more um, scrutiny and just uh, hardships upon hardships on people to um, even just live in this country, and so specifically around immigrant immigration, um, you know, the the situation was bad under Obama. We we saw over three three million deportations under him, and so we knew that it wasn't um, it wasn't going to get better under Trump because we had already seen an administration that could have done something, but um, was just making things worse for us. And we've also seen a shift in, in, in criminalization over the years, especially with the 1996 laws. Um, you know, that's, that's really something we've been t- paying attention for a while. Um, and we've seen how under each administration um, it's gotten worse. Uh, it's just, it's a, I would say it's a, it's a cumulative sort of situation where, you know, things haven't been getting any better under this administration. They you know, it's kind of like Trump being taken advantage of all the things that have been put in place so that now he's really exploiting the situation. Um, so, you know, asylum was hard enough to get before Trump, and now it's, there are even more restrictions, um, especially with uh, uh, migrant protection protocols, the MPP that's keeping migrants on the other side of the border, um, you know, we're definitely fighting that. It's, we've been seeing that it's it's really violating many human rights. It's not just the way we see it now. It's not just immigrant rights. It's, 
immigrant rights and human rights just a violation of a, of a huge array of things. Um, and so because of all of the things we've been seeing and all of the um, injustice that we've seen over the years, we, we saw that at the moment there isn't really a national narrative being driven on how are we going to solve all of these um, things, even if there was a new administration, these sort of, um, you know, like I mentioned, the 1996 laws, a lot of things have, are still in place, even with a new administration. So we've taken a look at how we can talk about this in, a, in the national agenda of how, what can we do? We need more than temporary statuses for people. We need more than, um, than you know, definitely not um, border enforcement, which is something that's always thrown at us as a solution to immigration. Um, and so we we came up with something called the Migrant Justice Platform. Um, and with that, um, we've been pushing for the, the presidential candidates to, to, to adopt and, um, you know, just take a look at and, and take, take it in mind when they're talking about which actually hasn't happened, but if they were to talk about immigration, we'd love for them to start talking it, about it in this way. Um, and some of the things included in that platform are like putting a moratorium to deportation, so stopping all deportations, um, you know, definitely improving situation, the situation at the border, um, because to us it's not just a uh, domestic issue, immigration is not just a domestic issue, it's definitely an international issue. And so those are some of the things, and I've gone on and on, but um, I do want to see if there, you know, there are any other things that um, you think might be useful to to know. Okay, let me ask you this. Uh, now, Rice is is it uh, an information organization? Is it a uh, you know on the ground helping migrants? Is it working with asylum seekers? Is it advocacy? Uh, and of course, the most important question: How can we help? How can we support you? Yes. Uh, no. Yes. Thank you. I yeah. I just kind of skimmed through, assuming, assuming everyone would know. Um, Raises is a it's a nonprofit organization that does a little bit, a little bit of a lot of stuff. <laughs> we started off as a legal services organization in the '80s, so we've been around for a while. Um, but really, we started getting a lot of attention in 2018 when the family separation policy happened. And as a result of that and the donations that came our way, we expanded a big, uh, in a big way that allowed us to expand our services. So not only are we doing um, legal services now, but we, we have a bond fund we, um, you know, to help migrants be released from detention. Um, many times they have to pay a bond, so we uh, offer assistance with that. We also are an advocacy organization, um, so we have organizers on the ground who work in local communities and push for local policies, which might not seem like, you know, um, relate to the national conversation, but very much drive the national conversation. Um, because without you know the local work, it's hard to see um, the, the change in a way uh, in the way that we want to see it, which is very you know it, it's a lot of deep embedded work. And so yeah, the local organizers are working on 
fighting the collaboration between ICE and the police. A lot of people think that even in in places that are that say they're friendly towards immigrants, there's no collaboration, but there's no really way of knowing that. And so we do a lot of investigating around that and, and bringing communities together to work against any of those collaborations. Um, and how can people help? So, yeah, I, I spoke a little bit about the Migrant Justice Platform. Um, we have a page for that specifically called the MigrantJusticePlatform.org. And also our um, our page in general, RicesTexas.org, uh, are the pages that you can go to and to see a little bit more about our initiatives and, um, you know, subscribe to get our newsletter and to sign up to volunteer. So those are some of the things that, that we are asking. Excellent. Um, now, uh, Texas is a big state. The border is a big border. Do you work in one particular area, or you uh, have different centers uh, across across Texas? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. We are right now at the moment, um, it definitely rises Texas, so our offices are mostly in Texas. Um, especially the legal offices, we have six different locations, so six cities. Excellent. We're in, yeah, we're all over. Yeah, it's a huge state, but we're we're all over. We're still um, looking to expand more, but we're in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, Corpus Christi, Houston, Austin, San Antonio. So we're all over the place in a way. Um, we do have an office in Los Angeles. But that's mostly for a lot of our. That's one of our advocacy offices. It's over there, and so we're all over um, in some ways, and, and trying to to expand to see where the need is. I would imagine that there is both uh, solid local citizen support. Uh, I was wondering how cooperative you're finding local law enforcement. Uh, obviously, ICE has its own agenda, which has mm-hmm. probably almost something to do with law enforcement. Um, how how is your support in the local community uh, from individual uh, people, community members? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's definitely something we. Um, valued a lot and so you know we push for if anyone at a national level wants to get involved in immigrant rights we um, have several ways we're looking to get people to even connect to the movement but at a local level is where we're driving a lot of the initiatives as well Um, so in each of the almost each of the offices where we provide legal services there's also a a community organizer and that community organizer connects not only to the clients we serve to you know share people's rights but also makes the invitation to everyone in, in the city to join in on the the local battle so we have been gaining momentum especially in the past two years um Excellent. since the advocacy department yes this is definitely something that we're um Wanna? looking to expand mm-hmm. good could you could you give your website one more time because unfortunately our time is running out, but I did want to give you time to give the website or the Facebook site one more time, so hopefully we can get yes. you some support. 
Yes, thank you. So our website is raicestexas.org, and our platform website is migrantjusticeplatform.org. Well, thank you again, Juana, and I do want to invite you to come back again. Okay, let's talk. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome, and uh, we'll set up another time because I do want you to come back and talk a little bit more, okay? Thank you again. Okay, yes, thank you. Okay, we're now going to go back to Mr. Dennis Campbell for part two of the Campbell interview. Well, and, and speaking of horseshit, uh, <laughs> and the stable genius whereof it comes, uh, l- let's talk about the lessons the president learned from the impeachment. What do you think, uh, Den? Uh, he learned he that really... he can do whatever the hell <laughs> damn well wants to do. Sobering news. Sobering news yeah. indeed. And, and it seems that... Uh, uh, the, the the Mexican president is being victimized by feminists who who dared to point out the ridiculous amount of femicide going down over there, and and Bolsonaro is uh, also getting some some uh, kickback. What uh, what do you think? Uh, are 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 uh, would be oligarchs uh, in danger, sir? Um, hard to say. I mean, Bolsonaro is 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 so extreme that, you know, he's the type of person that will um, incite an uprising. I, I think the one that should be most worried is um, our friend in, in Russia, Putin. Because he's now got, you know, people that are pretty upset with the way he's done things. Uh, Erdogan also has a growing movement of uh, resistance, and they've shown at the polls that, you know, particularly at a local level, his party is no longer in their favor. So it, it, there are all sorts of uh, interesting possible issues there. Um, can you talk Windrush with us for a few minutes? Yeah. Windrush is this... Um, they're, they're called the Windrush generation. They're people who, you know, migrated from mostly the island of Jamaica, which is still, even though it's independent, a member of the British Empire. Um, The citizens that come from there are are, are mostly dark-skinned individuals. And in the 50s and 60s post-war rebuild, they were vital to the rebuilding of the nation after the war. They were were very, very strong and filled a lot of uh, roles that uh, many did not want to fill. Uh, they they became bus drivers, they became janitors, they became, you know, very unskilled labor, but very good and very dedicated citizens. And now uh, there was this movement that started probably three or four years ago under the Tory government to harass and persecute, for example, anyone that had ever been convicted of a crime so that they were the first ones on the list that they were going to try and send back to the islands. And we had a a plane load of people that were ready to go last week, and a high court judge ordered that the flight not go forward um, because several of these were judged to have been serious criminals, uh, but others had appealed and, and, and they were waiting for the outcome of their appeal and 45 of them were taken off the first plane, and, of course, Boris 
not quite so badly behaved as uh, as Trump with tweeting and such, but he did explode. And uh, you know, the next day, the Home Secretary sent the other 45 without their appeals having been fully heard or been cleared by the judge. So we've got this situation where <clears throat> it's always people of color. It's always an you know interesting. Uh, dynamic of uh, you know well we're only picking on criminals that uh, yeah for now the worst of the worst strictly yeah, the worst of the worst. worst supposedly but I mean that's how you know Trump started and, and Obama started with sure. uh, you know getting rid of uh, Mexican and Central Americans and sending them back to their country of organization for a number of different reasons it's it's a slippery Slow. And Let me, uh, given given the, uh, the the range of things I'd like to talk to you with you about, let's let's turn to a completely other topic. And let me ask you this: Is democracy is democracy for sale? And is that okay? It's always been for sale. I mean, thirty-eight dollars. I, I don't a mean minute? to sound. I don't mean to sound you know um, trivial or trite, but I mean if you look at <clears throat> the means in which income inequality has been allowed to continue to grow. I mean, this is worse. This is the worst it's been since the dawn of the New Deal. Uh, and Rick, our parents grew up in a world <clears throat> where if you work 40 hours a week, you would have an income that would allow you to purchase a home that would allow you to save some of your um, money, that would allow you to put your children through university. Um, you know, my senior year of college, I keep telling people this, cost $3,200. Wow. $3,200. Wow. wow. And when I look and see Boston College today, the university I went to, the cost for a year of school plus lodging, plus everything else, you know, it's an absolutely astounding amount of money. And when I see that 45 million people are in student debt up to their eyeballs with no yeah. way to discharge or get rid of right. it. Right, right. I mean, my son and daughter are going to school. They have loans. But at least here in the U.K., you don't have to start paying them until you start earning more than £25,000 a year, which is well over $30,000. There's no interest that's growing or anything on them. And if it's not yeah. paid back after 10 years, it's discharged automatically by the state. So it's not this crushing thing that hangs over your head. I diverge, though. I was coming back to, uh, to, um, to, to, to you know, what somebody could do. My parents did. I mean, my father retired after 35 years with British Airways he had a decent pension he uh, died a few years later you know but there was still pension payments the house was fully paid off my mother was very comfortable and all of this off of them both working 40 hours a week and having a decent salary and a wage and ability to put things aside that opportunity just does not exist today I mean he earned a very good salary in the airline industry of which if he were to try and do the same job today, he would earn half of what he earned as 
a senior station officer with British Airways. My mother was a teacher, a nurse instructor, uh, so she did very well as well because she was at the top of her pay grade because of the skills and being a registered nurse. And none of that matters anymore. I just watched the American factory thing, and the one thing that, 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 the, um, that uh, the Obamas were part of the producing team for, the documentary, and I was stunned when I saw that when Ford closed the plant where they now have built this glass tempering plant for a Chinese group, workers there made $29 an hour with benefits and everything else. At this new incarnation of it, they earn twelve eighty four. So you say to yourself, "What the fuck? Sure. <laughs> How is anybody sure. working forty hours a week in a factory sure. job for thirteen dollars an hour, then probably having another job working even the same amount? So you're working basically sixteen hours a day, maybe even two or three jobs. Maybe you're working seven days a week because you got to have a weekend job." And you still can't keep up because the apartment you're renting, which, by the way, when my bride and I rented an apartment in Watertown, Massachusetts, the rent was $300 a month. That same apartment today is $3,000 a month. Wow. I mean, you just look at the the lack of, 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 of any sorts of controls, any sorts of decency, any sort of... And you ask me the question, is democracy for sale? It absolutely <laughs> is for sale. I mean, look at, the, look at what, the, what the drug companies are able to do. I mean, I've listened and watched people go from paying a $50 copay a month to a $500 copay a month. Sure. How the hell are you going to do that? I, I've, I've heard stories, as has everybody out on the campaign trail, as has everybody listening in your audience, of people who are trying to decide, well, am I going to take my heart medicine and ration that or my insulin? Which, one am I going to, which way am I going to die, slower or faster? And that is not a choice that anybody should ever have to make. Yet that is where we are. Yes, democracy is for sale. Mitch McConnell is for sale. I would say even some of the senior Democrats, because of the contributions they get, sure. are for sale. So... I have very, very big issues, and that's kind of why I look at people like Elizabeth Warren and her tenacity as someone who can probably get the job done. You know, I look at Joe, more of the old, maybe, but, you know, he's been around. He, got, he, was, he was on the team that got Obamacare through. That was the starting point. Now everybody's talking single payer. I think you can get there. But you've got to control big health, big farmer, big ag, big chemical, all of these groups that are spending a shit ton of lobbying money to get things like all the water rules taken away, which is what happened last week. Well, I was thinking that uh, if we could only get a more photogenic uh, multimillionaire or billionaire to, to run, <laughs> then, then our problems would be solved. Because I'm afraid that Mr. Bloomberg doesn't quite fit that, that mold very well. well clearly, he doesn't man. suffer uh, questions very well, does he? Uh, well, he, you know, He's been out of office for how long now? Wasting time. <laughs> yeah, and he's had a business for 40 years. He built it from the ground up, and nobody ever questions him. Now, all of a sudden, he's being questioned, and he doesn't like it. 
he's not the warm, friendly guy. He's very prickly. But this is what all of his money gives him the right to do, is to be prickly. (laughs) One other topic I did want to run by you. Since clearly the president's learned his lesson, uh, and... (laughs) And he you can't that get away. Face, huh? Yeah, he can't get away with anything at all. Do you think there is enough spunk in the Democratic Party to thwart anything this guy's going to do? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you know we're we're still eight months out. All right, next week, eight eight months in a week, and I think we've got some really bad economic news coming because of coronavirus. No one is going to be able to... I mean, the, the hit to the, to the airline industry, I, I saw a figure this morning, is going to be about $24 billion. And the fact that supply chains are being disrupted, you're going to see shortages on supermarket shelves, you're going to see job losses. I think by the time we get to June, it's going to be a very serious economic situation globally. Even though coronavirus will have receded at that point to in the northern hemisphere, uh, it will still be an issue in the southern hemisphere where it will be. There. And, uh, you know, I think we've, we've got to take it seriously. We don't know enough about it. And people in China are not getting the full story, surprise, surprise, on any. <laughs> that's, that's number one. Number two, Trump can't control himself. So he's going to continue to overreach. He's going to continue to be bombastic and stupid. I mean, last night that that thing that he did in in uh, I forget where he was, but he's going to be and he's going to be in uh, in Las Vegas today. He's unhinged completely. Yeah, maybe untethered, but he's unhinged, and people are starting to notice, and even his supporters are starting to notice. And I've been reading report after report that you know his big numbers in terms of uh, of, of uh, approval rating there's not a lot there and that there may be some errors in the way in which that's being reported so if you're a 43% president going it against a unified democratic candidate and there's not going to be an issue of turnout this year everybody realizes what happened in 2016 uh, I'm hoping for a massive electoral vote victory for the Democrat, including states like Georgia, maybe even Texas this time, and Arizona, of course. And that's going to help us take the Senate. So it's... it's I, I don't buy the doom and gloom, wringing of hands, you know, Lindsey Graham, get me a mint julep and a, and, <laughs> and, and a kerchief before I faint. You know, none of that stuff is, 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 is serious enough to me to thwart the fact that the guy's an asshole and people aren't going to vote for him in the suburbs, in the cities, in any sane area. It's just be the 35% wackos who go, to his, um, <clears throat> who go to his rallies. And, of course, half of those rallies are filled with people who are paid to be there. Sure, sure. So, I mean, just to give you the impression, oh, look at the support, look at the support. And by the end of the evening... You know, once he's 90 minutes in and, you know, not even close to wrapping up, you know, you look at some of the crowd shots, the place is less than half filled than it was at the start because people just get tired of it. Well, thank you so very much, my friend. And, thank uh, you. Have a wonderful day and best of luck with the play. 
Hey, thank you. It's been fun riding, that's for sure. I want to invite you to tune in to PNN, the Progressive News Network. It's live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Western Time. The voices of activists, scientists, and artists, produced by Rick Spizak, co-hosted by senior producer Brooke Hines, and also featuring Janine Maloff, Justice Correspondent. And on that note, I would like to welcome the illustrious Miss Janine Moloff, our senior justice correspondent and associate producer. Janine, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Well, this week I'm going to talk about the obvious mockery of justice with the Trump pardons and what it has in common with other really grievous injustices and tying it in with very sharp words that uh, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor had for her colleagues. I'll start. Convicted felon Roger Stone, a confessed friend to the Donald, has never met Willie Simmons, Kimber Edwards, or Marcellus Williams. In fact, since these other men are all poor and black, there's a safe bet that Stone will never meet them, unless, of course, he's sentenced to one of the maximum security prisons where they are condemned to spend the rest of their lives. Their stories serve as a harsh contrast to the privileged life Stone has led and present a damning indictment of our justice system and the role money and power plays in legal outcomes. In short, if you're rich and white, you'll get off easy. And if you're poor and black, you may as well pay up your life insurance policy now. This report is an examination of contrast in injustice. Now, Roger Stone, a longtime GOP boogeyman and dirty trick specialist, was convicted in federal court of seven felonies, including lying to authority, obstruction of an investigation, and witness intimidation. The initial sentencing recommendations from the U.S. attorney that acted as prosecutor was about nine years in prison. Stone could have received up to 20 years, but the recommendation was considered temperate. But Stone is a friend of Trump. Trump tweeted the injustice of the sentencing recommendation, and within a few hours of that tweet, A.G. Barr, Attorney General Barr, intervened and demanded DOJ review the recommendation in favor of a more lenient sentence. The, the, the coincidence is not lost on us. His actual sentence that the judge passed down was 40 months. And if you're a gambler loving a sure thing, then bet on Trump issuing a pardon on all charges, resulting in zero time served for Stone. It's a safer bet than placing money on Putin remaining in power. Now, the other three convicted felons that I want to talk about that serve as this stark contrast are Willie Simmons, Kimber Edwards, and Marcellus Williams. First, Simmons. Simmons is serving a life term without any chance of parole. And then we'll talk about Edwards, who's on death row, along with Marcellus Williams as well. So Willie Simmons' story. This Willie Simmons is a 62-year-old man, black man, he is serving a life sentence for stealing $9 in 1982. Now, Beth Shelburne, a reporter and producer for WDRC-TV News in Birmingham, Alabama, is one that really broke this story recently. And Mr. Simmons has spent the last 38 years of his life in prison. He stole $9. He was convicted of first-degree robbery and sentenced to life without parole in 1982. Now, part of the reason for that is he was prosecuted under Alabama's habitual offender law, which is kind of like a, a post of other three-strikes laws. Simmons did have three prior convictions. 
to add extra insult to injury, Simmons is also an Army veteran. So Beth Shelburne spoke to Simmons, and she, you know, he admitted to using drugs before he committed the crime that got him sentenced. And they quoted him saying, quote, I was just trying to get me a quick fix. Uh, Apparently, he wrestled a man to the ground, stole his wallet. The wallet contained a total of $9. The police arrested him. Um, Simmons recalled that his trial lasted 25 minutes. And the court-appointed attorney called zero witnesses. Prosecutors did not offer him a plea deal, even though all his prior convictions were nonviolent. Every appeal he's had for the past 38 years has been denied. And, you know, when when Ms. Shelburne asked him, um, you know, when basically asked his age, he laughed. It's been so long since somebody asked me that, he said. He hasn't, apparently Mr. Simmons hasn't had a visitor since 2005 when his sister passed away. So he's incarcerated at Holman, which is considered one of the most violent prisons in the country. He's studying for his GED, and he tries to stay away from the wild bunch. And the final injustice in this case took place in 2014. Um, Alabama abandoned the last possible appeal for those sentenced to life without parole if they were convicted under the habitual offender law. And, you know, Simmons said, quote, in a place like this, it can feel like you're standing all alone. I ain't got nobody on the outside to call and talk to. Sometimes I feel like I'm lost in outer space. So this, again, was a hideous abuse of justice. Now we go skip ahead to the case of death row inmate Kimber Edwards. Now, this is a story that I wrote in 2015, and his, uh, his, his execution date, his execution was commuted, so he's spending the rest of his time. By then, uh, Governor Jay Nixon, so he's spending the rest of his days in prison. Uh, and again, then Democratic Governor Jay Nixon did commute his death sentence at the 11th hour, literally an hour or so before he was to be executed. And this was after much evidence of witness testimony proved Edwards' innocence. But he still remains in prison. And I'd like to know why. So basically, the original title was how Missouri, my home state, planned to execute an innocent autistic man. Because Kimber Edwards was diagnosed as being autistic, specifically having Asperger's syndrome. And the basic facts were very simple, all right? Um, Basically what happened was Kimber Edwards was charged with a Class D felony of failing to pay court order support uh, in 2000. And he was scheduled to appear for a settlement conference um, and to accept or reject a plea agreement. Now, his ex-wife, Mrs. Cantrell, was listed as witness for the prosecution. Now, Kimber Edwards had recently been terminated from his employment as a correctional officer, ironically, in the city of St. Louis. And he and his wife, his second wife, owned and operated an apartment complex. A plea agreement, was he would have to pay a lump sum of $1,500 in exchange for $500 monthly payments. What happened was he was charged with the murder of his ex-wife. And basically, he was charged and convicted of murder and armed criminal action carrying the death penalty in 02. He was originally scheduled to die in the execution chamber October 6th of 2015. The case was, ironically, under the jurisdiction of then-Ferguson prosecutor Robert McCullough of St. Louis County. 
is when college prosecutors claimed that in 2000, Edwards hired Orthel Wilson to murder his ex-wife, Kimberly Cantrell, in order to evade criminal prosecution regarding delinquent child support payments. Now, allegations were made accusing St. Louis County Police of coercing a confession from Edwards and forcing a plea deal on the actual murderer in return for witness testimony against Edwards. The man who recently signed a formally witnessed affidavit recanting his previous testimony and confessing to the murder was that same prosecution witness, Orthel Wilson. Wilson claimed that he was threatened by police with a death penalty if he didn't accept the plea, which included alleged perjured testimony against Kimber Edwards. One other thing, Wilson is white and Edwards is black. No actual physical evidence ever linked Kimber Edwards to the crime. And the last thing, Kimber Edwards is autistic. And that is significant because he is really unable to aid in his own defense. Uh, in fact, they had quite a bit of, uh, of testimony from different uh, experts on Asperger's disorder. And one of the things that they, one expert in particular, Julie Donnelly, PhD, she explained the relevance of that diagnosis. If Kimber Edwards had been coerced to make a false confession, as was asserted by his attorneys from the Midwest Innocence Project, his autism would have rendered him unable to resist such coercion. Donnelly explained this in an op-ed. She, to quote her, she said, quote, individuals with autism are especially susceptible to being pressured. They often do not understand the consequence when they agree to request to escape from a difficult situation. They might make statements that are at odds with the truth. Many individuals with such disabilities have learned that when unsure, it is best to say yes and get along. Autistic persons also are frequently unable to read body language, facial expression, or vocal tone of others. Though they feel emotions, they also display a flat affect or, affect or deadpan expression, which looks like there's a lack of emotion or empathy. Socially appropriate facial expressions are alien to those with autism, especially Asperger's. And to quote Dr. Donnelly once again, quote, Kimber Edwards' expression or lack of expression is ex-wife's death, as Logan reported, was introduced to the trial and used as damaging characterization to the jury when it's common in autism to feel emotion but not show it in the typical manner. The fact is, when it came to Kimber Edwards' case, his diagnosis of Asperger's should have triggered a retrial. Uh, and again, there were a lot of ethical challenges when they, when you have a person who obviously presented those type of problems. Um, and you know, again, it's the height of pure corruption for police to interrogate such individuals without benefit of counsel. If Edwards displayed autism as the defense claim most uh, most probably since early childhood, then his symptoms would have been apparent to laypersons. To put it bluntly, Edwards' incompetency to understand the situation would have been obvious to police and the prosecution team. Unfortunately, an autistic black man in pre-Ferguson, St. Louis County, was a little more than an easy win and another notch in a prosecutor's belt. Even though under the ADA, or the Americans with Disabilities Act, Edwards was entitled to specialty advocates in addition to any attorney. It's ironic that the courts building in St. Louis County has legally required wheelchair ramps to provide accessibility to the physically disabled while violating the rights of intellectually and emotionally disabled persons. Then there was the problem of racial bias that loomed over the jury. He was convicted by an all-white jury. And again, the same prosecution team which spurred the Ferguson riots after the death of Michael, Bar Michael Brown. His attorneys from the Midwest Innocence Project challenged the model of the jury pool 
alleging the county prosecutors unduly disqualified black jurors. As they quoted, it said one black candidate was struck because he was divorced as a juror, even as a divorced white juror was seated. So, again, main prosecution witness recanted his testimony, or Bell Williams alleges, alleged that perjury was coerced by the police. He never actually testified in court. These were out-of-court statements collected by St. Louis County prosecutors introduced into evidence that was actually that was used to convict Kimber Edwards and send him to basically, um, you know, to the death the death cell. And so Wilson had to claim that Edwards also concocted and engineered this murder for higher conspiracy in order to save his own skin. The prosecutors failed to disclose the main condition of Wilson's plea, of his plea deal, namely that Wilson, the confessed murderer, would escape the death penalty in return for implicating Edwards. So basically, Wilson confessed to the murder. But in order to escape the death penalty, he had to say that it was Kimber Edwards that engineered this murder-for-hire situation, which wasn't the case at all. And the jury never knew they were witnessing what was alleged the born perjury by the St. Louis County Police. In fact, in St. Louis County, they have a name for it. They call it testaline. So it, Wilson later on um, basically even wrote an affidavit saying Kimber Edwards is completely innocent. But the court records show that Wilson's recantation of his previous testimony was ruled inadmissible. Prosecutors in McCullough's office uh, did not publicly comment. Um, and though Wilson's recantation was declared inadmissible, his confession is new legal territory. And there were some 14th Amendment violations as well that were alleged. The appeal, Missouri Appeals Court, Judge Carol Jackson, um, denied any 14th Amendment violation claims. She solely relied on technical procedural claims. And, you know, basically if the appeals court is supposed to judge whether the initial trial was fair and the evidence points to possible, new, possible civil rights violations, then the judge could have demanded a new trial while not compromising the role of the appeals court function. But that's not what she did. Basically, after quite a bit of uh, pressure on the 11th hour, uh, then-Governor Jay Nixon did um, right, commute the death sentence. But, again, Kimber Edwards still is in jail for a crime he did not commit. Now we go to the present case of Marcellus Williams. This is another man on death row. There's DNA evidence that proves his innocence with new DNA techniques. Uh, at that time, it was Governor Greitens. He commuted the death sentence. This was in August of 2017. Marcellus Williams never had a chance at a fair trial when he faced off again against the prosecutors in St. Louis County. This is the office of the Ferguson prosecutor. That was strike one. Marcellus Williams is a black man who faced an all-white jury charged with murder in the same county as the entire Ferguson disgrace. He was convicted solely on the word of a jailhouse snitch offering testimony for some leniency and an ex-girlfriend who admitted to a cocaine addiction at the time of the trial. There is no physical evidence linking him to the crime. That was strike two. Marcellus Williams' attorneys have incontrovertible DNA evidence taken from under the victim's nails and from the murder weapon exonerating him using new techniques that were not, that were not available at the time of the crime. DNA experts now were able to state that Marcellus Williams could not have committed the murder. 
Now, on August 16, 2017, the Missouri Supreme Court denied a stay of execution after that DNA evidence proved that he could not have committed the murder. The court failed to give an explanation for their actions. So any subsequent appeals to the Supreme Court will most likely be useless as the SCOTUS will have no procedural legal basis to consider the request. On August 22, 2017, at 6 p.m., Marcellus Williams was to be executed for a murder he didn't commit. Evidence clearing him was not considered. That is the third and final strike. Now, Marcellus Williams did receive a stay then from then-Governor Greitens in 2017, literally hours before he was to be executed. But he remains on death row in legal limbo. The history of the crime. He was charged with the murder of St. Louis Post-Dispatch journalist Felicia Gale. Prosecutors said that Gale was murdered in her home when she interrupted a robbery in progress. That was in 98. They charged Marcellus Williams with her murder, and an all-white jury sentenced him to death in 01. Again, Felicia Gale was a white woman living in a gated community, and Marcellus Williams is black. Then you had this postman gambit strategy, which was another aspect of prosecutorial misconduct. And this is a tactic that is used to disqualify black jurors. And basically what they do is they, it allows them to disqualify jurors for the slightest insignificant reason. And the reason it's called a postman gambit is because there was one juror that was um, basically disqualified and the prosecutor said, well, they work for the post office, therefore they are... Uh, and this was the case of Herbert Smalls, and the assistant prosecuting attorney had a black woman dismissed from the jury pool because she was a postal worker, and this prosecutor made the asinine claim that postal workers were untrustworthy and thus unfit to serve as jurors. And this is basically what they used to keep any black uh, citizens off of juries in St. Louis County. This is basically how prosecutors find any trivial excuse to dismiss potential black jurors in capital cases especially, where the defendant is also black, all the while manufacturing plausible deniability regarding any questions of racial bias. And even a Berkeley law professor called it out as racial bias, Elizabeth Semmel from the University of California, Berkeley Law School. It was called out by a, um, by a, Harvard, a Harvard study, Harvard law professor Ronald Sullivan, um, Quote, this report suggests that the win-at-all-cost mentality adopted by a small group of prosecutors has led to shockingly high rates of prosecutorial misconduct and wrongful convictions. So basically, we have three men, three black men, that have been unfairly treated by the justice system. And then we have a what was at one point a relatively affluent white man who was able to get away with what can only be called um, criminal uh, criminal behavior, frankly. So this is, and, and ironically, Governor Greitens wound up uh, facing charges himself. So this is, uh, again, another examination of when we have basically an injustice system as opposed to a justice system. Now we look at the pattern of illegitimate pardons coming from Trump's office. And Jeffrey Tubin, who is a legal analyst in The New Yorker, wrote, quote, he is dispensing largesse seemingly at random by his own whims rather than pursuant to any legal system, end quote. That's the real lesson, a story of creeping authoritarian, authoritarianism 
of commutations and pardons by President Trump. And that was in the Christian Science Monitor. Now we look at what basically Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor has to say about all of this. She took her conservative colleagues to task, which is highly unusual for a Supreme Court justice. And she compared their, she rebuked them for their, what she calls callousness and fealty to Trump. She drew attention to the fact that while her conservative colleagues seemed callous toward the cases of inmates facing the death penalty, inmates like Marcellus Williams, for instance, that is a terrible miscarriage of justice. She contrasted it with the what she considers the excessive fealty to Trump. And this was in a case dissent in Wolf v. Cook County, the public charge rule, which is basically saying that if you're a legal immigrant, you better have a certain enough money that you don't need any sort of public assistance or you're not going to be allowed to enter the country. And she wrote, this court is partly to blame for the breakdown in the appellate process. Um, that is because the court in this case and many others have been all too quick to grant the government's reflective request. She said the court's recent behavior on stay applications has benefited one litigant all over all others. The court often permits executions where the risk of irreparable harm is loss of life to proceed, justifying many of those decisions on purported failures to raise any potentially meritorious claims in a timely manner. Yet the court's concerns over quick decisions wither when prodded by the government in far less compelling circumstances where the government itself chose to wait to seek relief and where its claimed harm is a is continuation of a 20-year status quo in one state. It's clear that this disparity in treatment erodes the fair and balanced decision-making process that this court must strive to protect. And she's right. Um, she basically took them to task, and she wrote further, today's decision follows a now familiar pattern. The government seeks emergency relief from this court asking you to grant a stay where two lower courts have not. The government insists, even though review in the Court of Appeals is imminent, that it will suffer irreparable harm if the court does not grant a stay. Then the court yields. In other words, SCOTUS rewarded the Department of Justice for short-circuiting the appellate process and demanding immediate relief. But this application is perhaps even more concerning than past ones. So she's basically saying the SCOTUS basically allowed the government to seek extraordinary relief in this immigrant case, as a matter of course, relief to the government, the court would normally not grant. And she's basically accusing them of favoritism is what she's doing. And, you know, once again, she is right. Now, when we take it a little further, there's this group called the World Justice Project, and they talk about multiple aspects of justice. When it comes to criminal justice, there are about seven or eight considerations that a system must dem demonstrate in order to be considered a true justice system. That the system must be effective, the adjudication system must be timely and effective, the correctional center, I mean, correctional system is effective in reducing criminal behavior, the criminal justice system is impartial, the criminal justice system is free of corruption, the criminal justice system is free of improper government influence and that due process right of due process of law and rights of the accused are respected. And this is coming from the World Justice Project. I'm sorry, World Justice uh, Project. And this is something that once again we have to look at here um, because what's happening right now is anything but justice. 
when you look at Roger Stone getting a reprieve or Michael Milton, these were connected white men who didn't, they did the crime, now they don't want to do the time. And they are insisting they are above the law, and Trump is allowing it. So Justice Sotomayor is correct. When considering the Trump DOJ performance in light of these described principles, the principles that, that have been enunciated by the World Justice Project, they are criminally negligent on the issues of impartiality and the equal application of due process rights of accused parties. Viewing the disparate treatment received by Roger Stone and Michael Milken and then comparing that to what was received by Willie Simmons, Kimber Edwards, and Marcellus Williams, we see a system drowning in wholesale corruption and systemic racism. This has been the case for the history of this nation. The Trump administration adds more obvious and venal episode as the very idea of a system free of improper government influence is savagely attacked by a self-appointed monarch. We no longer retain even the sheer pretense of impartiality. Our judicial system has at the federal level, and yes, this includes the Supreme Court, has surrendered their power to a corrupt executive and his sniveling attorney general. Now, I'm aware of the fact the cases I spoke about were actually state cases and that any pardon would have to come from the state usually, but that's not the point. The point is the miscarriage of justice and, the, and basically the discrepancy in treatment. You get as much justice as you can afford, and that's also providing that you're white. The fact is this. The only difference between the newer cases of Roger Stone and Michael Milton resides in the increased awareness of this mockery of justice. In short, now affluent white liberals have come to discover what the black community and the migrant community has always intimately known. And that's my report. Well, thank you so very much, Janine. As always, a wonderful, insightful piece bringing to our attention the disturbing aspects of the unjustice system that we currently suffer. Yes. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye. And we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Well, friends, it's that time again. I do want to leave you with a voice that is so powerful. Mr. Ryan and Mr. McConnell, do you think Appalachian women like me with steel in our backbones will yield? You are kidding yourselves if you think we will be turned around. Did you, did you self-professed Christians not learn about Isaiah chapter 10? Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Woe unto them. Last night, the Senate voted to rob the working middle class and the working poor, the elderly, our children, students, and veterans to further enrich the filthy rich and large corporations. 
These so-called Christians say they follow the teachings of Jesus. They do not. They worship at the altar of money and power and hold tight to the philosophy of Ayn Rand. They lie and say they worship at the altar of Christ. In fact, they kneel and bend their knees and kiss the rings of the Koch brothers and other billionaire donors who are hell-bent on smashing the 99%. Listen very carefully, Mr. Ryan, Mr. McConnell, and your greed filled ilk. We, the people of the United States, are mobilizing. My sisters and brothers are rising up together to fight against the attack that you are giving to our people. And we will not yield until our people are free from the money changers and those who worship money and power. We, the people, see your tax scam for what it is, and we will overcome. Stay tuned, Paul and Mitch. We are coming for you. Give it Good up night, for Portia. Good night, my friends. We'll talk to you next week.